We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom. I'm really excited for you guys to bring you today's guest. It's someone, probably one of the biggest guests that I've had on this platform, including when it was Felony Friday and now Finding Freedom. This episode is going to be partially a throwback to the Felony Friday days because my guest did do time in prison and his story is remarkable. He has used that story to build a tremendous platform where he's been able to influence millions. Um, I cannot wait for you to hear from my guests. We'll do that shortly. But before we get to that point, I want to remind you guys to subscribe to this show. Uh, you can do so by looking for Finding Freedom on your podcasting app. If somebody sent you the show, it's easy to learn how to subscribe. Um, if you're having trouble finding the Finding Freedom uh, podcast with John Odermatt, um, maybe you're listening on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed. Well, what you can do is you can type in your podcatcher, Finding Freedom, John Odermatt, and it should pop right up. There are a couple competing Finding Freedom podcasts out there, but this is the best one. This is the true place where you come to find your freedom. And, you know, last week we talked about health freedom. We talked about things that corporations and the government has done to interfere in your health. And today, really, with the story that Damon is going to tell, part of it, it's really blocking out so much of the noise that we deal with in our lives. So many of the thoughts, the things we can't control, the news media, politicians, all this nonsense going on all around us, blocking that out as a way to find your freedom and to influence others. This is one of the best interviews I've ever done, and I'm excited for you all to hear it. Let's get to the show. Okay, we are live with Damon West. Had to delay the uh, the start of this here for uh, those of you from the Pride who are listening along, watching along. Please drop any comments or, or questions that you have for Damon in the uh, in the chat, and I'll try to try to ask him. Um, prepare to be blown away, guys, and I, I say that honestly. Uh, the first I heard of Damon was a couple weeks ago. I heard him on the Ed Milet podcast, which is. One of my favorite podcasts for motivation, entrepreneurship, um, he has one of the biggest platforms um, for bringing people on. And I'm not just saying this. Damon's interview, and I've probably listened to hundreds of uh, Ed Milet's podcasts, Damon's interview was the best one I've, I've heard yet. So I, I said to my wife, um, as we were listening to it, we were on a car ride, and I said, I'm going to get him on my show. <laughs> and uh, she's like, what? No, you're not. But uh here he is, Damon West. Welcome to Finding Freedom. John, man, thanks. I didn't do. I mean, what you just said—that that blows me away because I listen to Ed Milet, man, and just uh, even being the conversation of some of the best podcasts he's had—that's uh, that's incredible, man. I, I'm I'm truly humbled by that. And look, brother, you did what I do still to this day. 
you reached out and asked the question. And that's how mm-hmm. I got on Ed's show. It took me about a year of asking Ed to get on the, uh, get on there. But um, And some people helped me out talking to him that knew him. But uh, yeah, man, when people do that, man, that's that's my call right there, too. I do the same thing, brother. So thanks for thanks for asking the question. Yeah, I, I remember that part from the interview. That was another motivation to ask the yeah. question. But a little, a little background on Damon. Um, he was a college athlete, successful athlete, and uh, ended up going down the wrong path. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. Ended up going to prison and had some life-changing events happen to him when he was in prison, when, when he was locked up. And after getting out, he's become a very successful uh, speaker, a successful author. He wrote the book with he wrote a book with uh, author and keynote speaker John Gordon titled "The Coffee Bean." You've probably heard of it. It's called "The Coffee Bean: A Simple Lesson to Create Positive Change." So let's let's start. I like to start with my guests who you know really do have a a story like yours, who have been to prison and have gone through that and come out on the other side. Um, to start at, at the beginning, really. So. Can you share with us a little bit about what your life was like before before prison during your you know football playing days? Yeah, you know, it, kind of the best way for me to start this is uh, May eighteenth, two thousand nine. This is after the football playing days. This is obviously fourteen, mm-hmm. thirteen years ago. I'm standing in front of a jury in Dallas, and the jury in this organized crime tri- called organized crime trial they're they're they've got me for organized cr- engaging in organized criminal activity to commit burglary habitation in the city of Dallas it's a texas crime so i'm standing in front of this jury john and the jury has just listened to 6 days of overwhelming evidence of my guilt and y'all a, a 6 day trial is a long criminal trial for crimes that were non aggravated meaning that no one was ever home i never saw my victims they never saw me no one got hurt no no weapons mm-hmm. were ever used it doesn't mean that I wasn't a bad guy because, look, I mean, I'm breaking into people's houses. I'm not just stealing property. I'm stealing people's sense of security. So I, I was a bad guy. But the jury looks at me with this loathing discontent. They hate my guts. And I give them every reason to hate me. Because in front of them is a guy that had it all, John. I had everything going for me in life. I, I came from a great family. Uh, my mother, my father just finished celebrating 54 years of marriage. I mean, I didn't come from a broken home or a separated mm-hmm. home. Uh, I was a great athlete growing up in Texas. High school football is a really big deal. And I was a really good high school football player, the starting quarterback for a 5A school for three years. And then I went on to play Division I college football at the University of North Texas, where I was the starting quarterback by the time I was 20 years old. I mean, 20 years old, I'm a D1 quarterback in America. And I really thought mm-hmm. I have arrived. Man, my, my head is this big. But life has a way of giving you these days that I call fork in the road days. And I came to a fork in the road when I was 20 years old when my football career was ended against Texas A&M, and my identity was gone once that happened. And I started getting into more hardcore drugs, cocaine, ecstasy pills. But I graduated college in 1999. I moved off to Washington, D.C. I got a job working in the United States Congress. I worked for a guy running for president of the United States. And in 2004, I moved back to Dallas to train to be a stockbroker for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world, UBS, United Bank of Switzerland. And it was at that job in 2004 that another broker introduced me to meth when he saw me sleeping one day at work. Hmm. And with the introduction of meth into my life, it took me about 18 months to lose everything. And anybody that's ever done meth, you know what I'm talking about. It's a very addictive drug. And in 18 is, months, I've lost everything. Can I, can I jump jump in for a minute? Is, is sure. that something that's, that's I don't, know, I don't want to say common, but with stockbrokers doing meth, is that, I mean, is that, it sounds well, kind of off the... 
you know, when I when when I was around the brokers, I was around uh, mm. substance abuse was a big deal, especially yeah. you know, especially the uppers. I mean, you're, it's a very high stress uh, job. It's a very uh, high octane job. So it was not uncommon for the people I was around, the, the broker that I was around, for a lot of substance abuse, a lot of different substance abuse going on. But this guy was into meth. He was the only broker I knew that was into meth. Uh, and I wasn't a broker for much longer after I tried it for the first time. Cause then, you know, then I got fired and lost everything. And well, I was living on the streets of Dallas and, and, and after, you know, living on the streets of Dallas and committing property crimes, like breaking into cars, breaking into storage units, I, I eventually escalated to breaking into homes and these burglaries, they called them the uptown burglaries. They called me the uptown burglar. And, um, these burglars went on for three years. And after three years of committing property crimes on July 30th, 2008, a Dallas SWAT team took me down. And this dramatic SWAT team raid in this dope house that I was in. So there I am in trial. The jury's heard it all. The guy that had it all gave it all away for dope. And now he's on trial. A real arrogant guy, too. I was, oh, man, I was a, I was a, a guy that it was easy to hate at that time. And the jury went to deliberate that day for 10 minutes on my punishment, John, 10 oh. minutes. I don't know how much law and order you watch, but if a jury's gone for 10 minutes, it means they smoked you. And I came back into the courtroom and the judge read the sentence out loud. He said, Damon Joseph West, you are hereby sentenced to 65 years in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. 65 years, John, is a life sentence in the state of Texas. So when you hear that read, you hear 65 years. And that batted around in your brain. What, what, what's going through your mind? What, what, what are you thinking at that time? I, I mean, it took my breath away. And, and what's weird in my book, The Change Agent, my autobiography, I talk about the, the first thought that goes through my head is like, man, I'm never going to vote again. You know, like that's some kind of knee jerk reaction. Felons can't <laughs> vote. But then I realized, like, I may never get out of prison. I, I'm going to prison for the rest of my life. And uh, it was it was like being kicked in the gut, man. It was the hardest it was, it was the hardest news I've ever received. But I call that day rock bottom. That was my rock bottom moment. That's kind of the day that I realized that something had to change, that something was me, but I didn't know how to make that change. So you've you've gone into more detail um, about your prison experience and really the the violence that you experienced while in prison than, than a lot of uh, other guests that have had on this show. Really. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've had some that go into it, but it seems like a lot of people don't want to talk about it um, for for whatever reason. I'm sure they have their reasons, but can you go into um, what it was like walking into prison? And I, I know that uh, from your interview with Ed, your mom had an instrumental role in really setting you up for having the the right mindset going in. Yeah, right after the trial, right after the trial was over, my mom and my dad are given one last visit with me. The but they're behind the glass. I mean, I've been sentenced to life. And so my mom gives me this ultimatum. She says, you can't go into this. You know, you can't come back out of this as someone we didn't raise. She said, we didn't raise you to be a racist. So she, you cannot get in one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood type of gangs. And she said, you cannot get any tattoos while you're inside this prison. And, and dude, man, prison and tattoos just go together hand in glove, man. And I'm going to a maximum security level five penitentiary. This is the highest security level there is. Because I've got life, and but she's telling me no gangs, no tattoos. You come back as the man we raised, or don't come back at all. And I agree to this, but I don't know how I'm going to do this, John. I have no clue how I'm going to 
you know, deliver on this promise I've made because I'm in Dallas County Jail for those last two months before the prison bus comes to get me. And everybody's telling me black, white, Asian, Hispanic, you have to get into a gang. You won't survive without a gang. They told me the gang would be my family even. And these, these are lies, of course. But there was this one guy in Dallas County Jail that was so different than everybody else, this older black man named Mr. Jackson. And Mr. Jackson, he's what you call a career criminal. This guy's been in and out of prison all of his life, man. He's been to prison four or five times, but he's the most positive guy I've ever met. Hmm. And this guy had a smile on his face everywhere he went. You couldn't knock the smile off of Jackson's face. And every morning, every single morning, Mr. Jackson would come up to my cell, to my bunk, and he would pick me up like a ray of sunshine in that dark place with his positive energy. So one morning, Jackson comes up and he's got a cup of coffee in his hands and he's telling me what prison is going to be like. And he's telling me that when you get to prison, you're going to have to fight the white gangs off because you're white. He's telling me the overriding factor in prison is race. He said race runs the whole institution because all the inmates in there want it to be about race. He said, you're going where the lifers are, the worst part of the prison system. So when you walk in the door, the white gangs can get the first dibs on you. You've got to fight all the white gangs off if you want to be independent from them. And if you survive the white gangs, then you have to get ready because now the black gangs are going to come after you too. And he said, if you survive all of this and you can survive all of this, other people have You'll earn the right to walk alone. He said the strongest man in prison always walks alone, does not join a game. But he tells me, he tells me about this fighting. He says, you don't have to win all your fights, but you have to fight all your fights. That was a huge distinction for me, John, because that told me that, you know, I don't have to go in this thinking I have to be the victor every time. I just got to show up. And if I just show up and give it my best effort, then I, then I can go to the next day. But when he's telling me this back in 2009, man, I'm looking back at this guy like a deer in headlights, all this violence and terror I'm about to walk into. And that's when he was he was like, Wes, let me break it down for you another way. He said, I want you to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. And he said, anything we put into this pot of boiling water is going to be changed by the heat and the pressure inside that pot. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to put three things in this pot of boiling water and watch how they change. A carrot, an egg and a coffee bean. So he walks me through it. He said a carrot in the pot of boiling water turns soft and mushy and weak. An egg in the same pot of boiling water will turn hard on the inside. The heart becomes hardened. The soft liquid core becomes hard as a rock. And he said, that is your heart. And if you become the egg inside this prison, you become institutionalized. And you won't come back as someone your parents recognize because your eggshell will have swastikas tattooed all over it. Then he told me, he said, the coffee bean was the only thing that could change the water. It changed the water into coffee. It was the change agent. Everything mm. else he said is changed by the water, but the coffee bean changes the water to coffee. And that's what he tells me. He says, if you're going to survive this and come back as someone your parents recognize, then you're going to have to be a coffee bean. Be a coffee bean. These four words that this man told me that changed my life because this meant that the power was inside me. Now, if the power was inside me and he was telling me the truth, that means the power is not in the hands of the criminal justice system, the guards, the other inmates, you know, it meant the power's inside me. And so mm -hmm. it means no matter what environment I go into, I, I won't just survive. I can thrive as long as I keep the power inside me. And he told me, he said, when you walk in the door the first day, they're going to heart check you. And he said, the first guy's going to come up to you is going to be a white guy because you're white. But he's not a threat. He's an information gatherer. He's a scout. He's going to ask you one question. What gang do you want to be a part of? And he said, get this guy out of your face as fast as you can and get ready. Because the second guy that comes up to you, He's not coming to talk to you. He's coming to hurt you. He said, when that guy gets within range, put your fist in his mouth. Hit him as hard as you can. Get the jump on this first guy. And, man, I'm telling you, when I walked into prison, John, wow. I walk in. 
they escort me to the life sentence building and they have these sally port doors. Anybody that's been to prison knows what the sally port is. They let me into the sally port, door closed behind me, then the door opens up in front of me and I walk out of that chute and I walk into this pod, it's this giant day room, three tiers of cells, it's really loud. Anybody that's been to prison knows how loud prison is. And when they walk, when I walk in the door, that life sentence pod, the volume drops to zero. I mean, and you could hear, a, it's, you could hear, you could hear anything in that room, you could hear a pin drop. And everybody's staring at the new guy that just walked in. And I'm, dude, I'm freaked out. I'm, I'm thinking about making a run for it. You know, forget what Jackson said. I'm going, I'm, I'm running for it. But man, I couldn't make it to my cell if I tried. It's on the third tier by the shower. So I just, I put my bags down, I put my back against the wall and I waited. Didn't take five minutes. Here he comes. Little bitty white guy comes up for a little bald headed white guy. He's tatted up from head to toes. Even his eyelids are tatted up. And he gets in my face. He's like, hey, white boy. He said, what family are you going to ride with, white boy? John, I'm like, man, get out of my face, little dude. I'm riding with God. Please just leave me alone. I'm riding with God. And he said, man, he said, God isn't here, white boy. He said, we kicked him out a long time ago, but we're here and we're coming to get you. Get ready. He goes up the stairwell on the right side. A few minutes later, coming to the third tier, biggest corn-fed white dude I've ever seen in my life. Huge, jacked up white guy with a bald head and a swastika tatted all around the top of his skull, man. All I see is a swastika, two beady eyeballs and muscles coming at me. And man, I give this guy everything I have, man. He gets within range. I hit him in the mouth as hard as I can. Didn't phase him, man. 20 seconds, my first fight in prison's over. The dude's beating the hell out of me on the ground across the day room, right? So I'm 0 for 1. I've been in prison for about 20 minutes at this point. And I go up to my cell and I start putting my cell together. You, you, just, you, just, got, you just got beat up. And, and you're going into your cell. You're probably in pain, oh, I'm way, sure. Yeah, this, but yeah. that's just the way it is in prison. I mean, yeah. I, look, I mean, I've seen guys... Yeah, they get in. I saw a guy one time in the day room. He was writing a letter to somebody. Somebody called him out. He goes in boxes. He comes back and he finishes writing the letter. He's bleeding and everything. But I mean, just that's just life in prison, man. You just there, there's no. It's not like normal world stuff, man. Mm-hmm. Fighting is not a big. People like to watch fights in there. They call them a free show instead of pay per view. It's a free show, right? So everybody wants to watch these fights. And when the fight's over, everybody disperses and you just but, go up to yourself. What are the guards? What are the guards doing during the fights? Man, the, the, the best way to fight, and I mean, the best thing that people can do to fight is wait till the guards are gone. And that's what the guards will tell you, man. Look, you know, the guards will tell you, whatever you want to do that's illegal, don't do it in front of me, man. If you do it in front of me, now I got to do my job and bust you. Mm-hmm. You want to tattoo, you want to fight, you want to do all these other promis- promiscuous things they do in there, man, wait till I'm gone and done counting. Usually the guard, prison was like this, man. In the life's in this building, there wasn't a lot of attention paid to the life sentence building by the guards. They would come by for counts, you know, when they would come and count everybody and make sure they're there. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, for the most part, they didn't show up. I mean, like in prison, you're supposed to have this thing called ingress, egress. I mean, they, they, run the, they roll the doors every hour on the hour. They're supposed to let you in and out of your cell, ingress, egress. That didn't happen like that. I mean, you, you were lucky if every three hours you could get in and out of your cell. Wow. So the guards just didn't come down to the life sentence building much. So, I mean, you could just do anything you wanted down there. It was like it was like the the edge of the earth. I mean, it was crazy. It was just like a, a, a crazy island to live on. And, uh, you know, I had to fight for the first couple of weeks, the Aryan Brotherhood guys and, and the, the white guys. And after that, it was the black gangs, just like Jackson said it would be. Six weeks into prison, I'm still fighting the white gangs, and I go out to the rec yard, and the rec yard in the life sentence building, man, everything was segregated by race out there, too. The sports were. So I went to the sport where the blacks were playing, which is basketball, and I got myself into a basketball game out there on a Monday, and 
man, this basketball went on for about a week, man, about six days. We're just playing basketball with these guys and the most brutal basketball I've ever been in in my life. But after that week of playing basketball with those guys, I'd finally earned the respect from them and I didn't have to fight anymore. So we're about two months into prison now and the violence is over. I don't have to fight anymore. The threat to my physical safety is gone, but I've got a bigger problem in my hands after two months in prison. I've become the egg. And John, I don't want to be the egg, but at this point, I don't know how to mm. be a coffee bean either. So at what point did you realize that, that you were becoming the egg? Two months into prison, I realized I'm becoming the egg when I don't have to fight anymore, but I'm angry all the time. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. ang- I'm angry at Mr. Jackson. You give me this, this fable, this fairy tale about this carrot, this egg, and this coffee bean, but you didn't tell me how to be a coffee bean. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like one of the last conversations I had with this student county jail, I mean, I asked him, I said, man, what am I going to find more of when I get to prison? And, and he told me, he said, eggs. West eggs. He said the egg is a natural evolution for any human being inside of any difficult situation. And yeah. you're going to one of the most difficult there is, and you're going to probably become an egg too. And, you know, he was right. I was becoming the egg. But I had a, I had a cellmate, man. My first cellmate in prison was this little Hispanic guy named Carlos. And Carlos is about five foot four, a little Hispanic, a little bank robber from San Antonio. He was serving 99 years for a bunch wow. of bank robbers he did. Yeah, good, good dude, though, man. I mean, you know, you live with a lifers, you got to change your mind about what a good guy and a bad guy is, right? I mean, I got mm-hmm. a bank robber. I could have a child molester or a rapist or something, man. But I got a little bank robber myself. Good dude, too. I mean, I still talk to Carlos all the time. In fact, if you go to my social media pages, I just visited Carlos about a month ago. There's a picture of Carlos and I inside the prison. Good dude, man. Yeah. So well, Carlos, people, people who listen to this show, Damon, they understand because they've heard. I've had a lot of people who've been to prison through the system. They understand that there's really good people who end up going to prison. You make a mistake, you get in that situation. Um, it doesn't indict you for life as a terrible person. A lot of people do terrible things. Some people get caught doing it. Some people don't. This is true. This is true in life. This is true all the time. And, and I met some good people in prison. And, you know, look, John, this is a good time to say this, a little break in the story. Mm-hmm. When I got out of prison in 2015, I made parole. And I've been on parole for about the last six and a half years. I'm on parole the rest of my life, by the way, till 2073. But when I got out of prison six and a half years ago, one of the things I've gone and done is I went back to school and got a master's in criminal justice. And today I'm a professor at the University of Houston downtown, and I teach a class called Prisons in America. I'm the only professor in the world to teach a prisons class that lived in prison. Like I've got a whole different perspective than all the other prison professors in America because I got to live in prison and I know what it's like. I didn't get to go home. So like my class, you know, when I'm teaching my class and we have a discussion about something going on in prison, we have a textbook and we will read out of the textbook for a little bit. But I'm like, close your books. Let's talk about this topic, because let me tell you about what happens behind the walls. Um, But Carlos was a really good influence in my life. Back to the story. Carlos Mm -hmm. is a really good influence in my life. This guy really helped me see that prison was not a punishment. Prison was my opportunity. And that's something that I didn't, I couldn't see on my own in those first couple of months of prison because um, he's helping me become that coffee bean. And, and, and I tell people, I stress this with people all the time, that in my life, God, what I call God, has never just reached his hand down and put his hand on my, his hand down and put his hand on my head and said, Damon, you're healed. It's never worked like that for me, John. Mm-hmm. In my life, God has put people in my life. And when I was younger, these people were like my parents. They were coaches. They were teachers. They were people in the community of Port Arthur that helped raise me. As I got older, they took on the forms of different people. 
And some of those people were a black Muslim man in Dallas County Jail. Another one was a little Hispanic bank robber named Carlos from San Antonio. So the moral of that is that there's messengers on the road of life. And if you shut yourself off to people because of their differences, different race, gender, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, mm-hmm. if you close yourself off to, to people because of their differences, you're going to miss some of the most important lessons, some of the best guides, and some of the best friendships in life. Because That's a great I, point. I got help from so many different people in there, man. So many I, other cellmates that I met, you know, people invested in me. My family invested in me while I was in there. Uh, other people in prison invested in me and saw something in me. And uh, it helped me become the best version of myself because no one does any of this alone. We all have help along the way. That's an excellent point. And I mean, even more so in today's times where everyone is so divided, everyone's arguing about politics or cultural things. And it seems like everyone, especially on social media, everyone's looking to pick a fight rather than looking to make a connection. And if we had more people who were open to making a connection, open to having a conversation, I mean, that would go a long long way towards uh, making this world a better place. But you were talking before about how you became an egg in prison. It hardened you. So what happened that, you know, influenced you and caused you to change to actually start to become a coffee bean and impact people around you positively? You know, Carlos told me that he said my thinking was all off. He said your thoughts control your actions. He said that prison was an opportunity and he would ask me at night, what are you prepared to do tomorrow with your opportunity? So I'd wake up in the morning. My feet would hit the cold concrete floor of the prison cell and I'd look up at the ceiling and I'd say this sentence that for the first couple of years, I didn't even believe when I said it, but I'd say, hey, God, thank you for this opportunity. And I'm telling you, I don't believe it, John. I don't believe this is an opportunity. Mm -hmm. But I get up and I do what everybody is required to do in life to change the situation they're in. I took a small step of action into my new life every day. Every day was just these little bitty steps but I'm going forward. I'm moving forward in life. And, it, you know, you don't have to take these big leaps and bounds and you, and you don't have to worry about the results. Man, that's one of the things I learned in prison. Don't worry about the results because the results take time to measure. Life is a long time to live. There's no such thing as an overnight success. This wasn't going to happen overnight because the only path forward that I found in life in prison or out of prison is through things like hard work, dedication, commitment, patience, consistency, a little bit of luck along the way. But I would just get up every day and try to work on myself and try to get myself positive to be that coffee bean in there. Days became weeks, weeks became months, and months became years. But I finally figured out how to be a coffee bean. And, and I'll tell you, like, there's like five things that I would have to do every day to be a coffee bean. The first mm-hmm. thing is to remember to smile everywhere I went. Your, your smile is powerful, John. Your smile, your body language your body language can change the energy in every room you go into. Because mm-hmm. when people see you smile, they smile back. So I came in there. Jackson told me, he said, use your body language as, as, as an advantage, as a tool. Smile everywhere you go. So I did. I smiled everywhere I went. And, and eventually, the energy changed because they saw this guy with a smile on his face. And, and how threatening could a guy with a smile on his face be? Now, he told me also, if you walk around with a frown on your face, you want to look hard, you're going to find negative people to match your negative energy. This is the law of attraction. So I'm trying to attract positive people to me as a coffee bean because he also said that if you're positive, the other positive inmates, the other coffee beans, they'll find you because coffee beans are always looking for other coffee beans, right? Mm. So 
my smile was the first thing. I had to smile everywhere I went. Second thing I had to do every day is in my cell, I reminded myself I'm going to work out in three areas today, spiritually, mentally, and physically. When I got into prison, I got into a program recovery. And this program recovery is really the secret sauce to how I have everything going on for me in my life right now and mm. my sobriety. Because my program recovery as a recovering addict is the very most important thing I have in my life, more important than my, my wife and my stepdaughter. It's more important than my career because anything I put in front of my recovery, I will lose. And mm. recovery is a reason why I think a lot of people go back to prison in the first three years of what they call recidivism because about 80% of the people that are locked up have substance abuse issues. And it's these substance abuse issues that we aren't dealing with that cause us to go back out again because we don't know how to deal with life on life's term. So spiritually working out, I learned how to pray when I got into recovery. And I still say the same prayer that I learned when I got into an AA group in the Chapel of Hope on the Mark Stiles unit. I say, hey, God, put in front of me what you need me to do today for you. And let me recognize that when I see it because I don't want to miss that. Amen. That's it. That's the end of the prayer because I don't need anything else because my, in my faith, I'm a Christian, but you can be any faith you want. But as a Christian, I believe that if I take care of God, what God needs me to do for him, he'll take care of my needs too. Not my wants, but my needs. And that's what I had to separate in there. What are my needs, man? And if my needs are being met because I meet the needs of others, then I'm going to be okay spiritually. And mentally, mentally was every book you read, every video you watch, the websites you go to. You know, it, out here in the free world, it's your social media feed. Who are you following? Yeah. What are they posting? What are you posting on social media? What do you watch for TV? You watch something that calls itself news, but it's people screaming at each other, telling you to fear everybody around you. That's not news. That's negative entertainment. I don't care if it comes from the left or the right. Turn that crap off. It's poisoning you. It's poisoning your families. That's the thing I, I remind people all the time. You are what you eat. It's not just about food. It's everything you feed this big brain eaters up here, mm -hmm. and you will look like and act like on the outside, what you feed this thing on the inside. So feed yourself the right stuff mentally and physically. You got one body in this life. You had to take care of yourself. I had to get in shape when I was in prison. I came into prison in terrible shape from county jail. I put like 65 pounds on, but I became the best version of myself inside that prison, spiritually, mentally, and physically. And that was, that took constant work every single day. Another rule about being a coffee bean was realizing what the secret to life was. The secret to life is servant leadership. Servant leadership is helping other people reach their goals in life, helping to raise other people up to a different station of life. Because mm -hmm. when we're helping other people, that's really when we're at our best. And that's what that's how we grow. So that was a big thing for me to learn how to be a servant leader in there. And it was doing things like helping guys, teaching guys how to read, how to write, you know, helping guys get guys ready for the GED test. I couldn't take any college classes because. I had a college degree, so they wouldn't allow me to take any college classes, but I could teach other guys how to read and mm -hmm. write. Another rule about being a coffee bean was, you know, was knowing what, you know, knowing what I do and do not control. This is such a big one, John. I mean, it took me going to prison and being stripped of everything, especially my, my ego and my pride to learn that there are only four things that I have control over. And they're the same four things you have control over in your life. Those four things are exactly what you think, what you say, what you feel, and what you do, your actions, and that's it. What you think, what you say, what you feel, and what you, you know, you live in a prison, mm -hmm. you realize how little control you have over everything. Somebody's gonna tell you when you can eat, when you can go to the shower, when you go to commissary, when you can go to your cell. You don't have a lot of decision-making power inside of a prison, but the world you control wherever you are is between your ears. 
That's what you control. And I had to get in there and say, you know what? If it's not something, if it's not what I think safe feel or do, then that's not mine. That's on God's line. That's not on my line. My line is those four things. And if I if I could focus myself on those four things, that's when I could make some real change in my life because those are the things I have control over. So I had to remind myself daily, more than one time a day, you know, those are the things I can control and those are the things I don't. And the last rule about being a coffee bean was can, really can, something. Can I, I say one, one thing on that? Because that is so absolutely. important. I, I think I think so many people, you know, I, I don't want to compare being outside of prison to prison, but it's just a natural comparison to make. They create a prison in their own mind. And yeah. th- th- there's a stat out there. It's something like uh, worries and stresses, something like 80% of, of what we think about and stresses us out is stuff that we have absolutely no control over. And you, you get into worrying about politics and, and who's, who's the president and what they're saying. It's nothing you can do about it. And it's going to have no impact on your life. But this stresses people out and it makes us unhealthy and, and it makes our life less enjoyable and it impacts the people around us. So, I mean, that ad is so important. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, John, and the people out here in the free world that, that cause you to stress out, that cause the drama, the people that start this drama out here are exactly the same kind of mindset of the people that start the drama inside a prison to stress you out. Mm-hmm. Because when that happens, you're not paying attention to the real important stuff. Your eye is not on the ball anymore. And that's what they do. They distract, they deceive, they distort. That's what people do. And they call it in prison, they call it running game. Mm-hmm. Out here in the free world, I call it running game. When you see these politicians and these, these news companies, like I said, it's not news, it's negative entertainment. It's not mm-hmm. even news anymore. So you have to tune that stuff out. But the last rule about being a coffee bean was something I remind myself of all the time. I remind other people, it's that your past does not define you. John, I don't care what you've done in your past, where you've been, what side of the tracks you grew up on. Your past is an event. It's happened, man. It's not you. That's in your past. Your past is something, it it can be a tool. You can learn from it, or you can even teach people with it. There's a reason why your windshield is bigger than your rearview mirror. You need a lot more space to look forward when you drive a car than you do to look backwards. You can't drive a car looking mm. at your rearview mirror. You'd hit everything on the road in front of you in sight. Well, the same thing happens in life when we live in the past. We live in the past good things we've done, the past bad things we've done. Get out. I tell you all the time, get out of the rearview mirror, man. You're going to you're gonna cause your present and your future to be a bunch of wrecks. No one wants to have a bunch of wrecks in their life. So every day I will remind myself, no matter what my situation is, no matter the fact that I'm serving time in prison, that I am a human being and I am a good person. What I have found in prison is like I go to prisons all the time, all over America. And I share this story with men and women all over the country that are incarcerated. And and when I'm done with my presentation, there's always a man or woman that will come up, never fails. It says, you know, Damon, of all the amazing stuff you're doing in your life, you know, and you've got an incredible life. The main thing I want to know is how you did that. They point to my wedding ring. They point to mm. my wedding ring, John. They want mm. to know because that's what they, and they say, that's what I want. And I remember being there. I remember being in prison, laying in my bunk, thinking, man, there's no way I'll ever find somebody that will love me. That's not going to happen. Not with the choices I've made. I'm not mm. a good person. Or there, if I find that person that will love me, their, their family won't love me because who wants to take that kind of baggage on? You know, I've got a life sentence. But it didn't happen that way. It's like I tell people all the time that man plans and God laughs. You know, my life was totally different. The fears that I lived in, and I tell people all the time, these fears that get in our heads, fears aren't real, John. Danger's real. 
but fear is not. Fear is an emotion. It's something how you feel the situation you're in. It's how you perceive the situation. And when you're, you're living in prison, it's easy to get caught up in all the fears and the gloom and the doom and lose hope. And that's the thing. I, you know, As a coffee bean, and I'm trying to find hope in my life every day. I'm trying to bring hope to other people's lives every day when I'm in prison. And you know, after seven years and three months, this is uh, 2015, the parole board comes to see me. Now, look, I'm up for parole because my crimes are non-aggravated. I mean, I didn't physically hurt anybody. So I, I got credit for good time and work time, and I'm parole eligible in seven years. But I don't think I'm going to make parole in seven years. I figure I'll probably mm -hmm. pull a dime, maybe 15, on this life before they let me go home. Because that's what you pull a dime easily on a, on a life sentence. And But the lady from parole was just like, she was shocked. She said, you didn't just change yourself. You changed this prison. And, and it was wow. a very tough prison where I was. And they wanted to know if I could find coffee beans in the free world like I found coffee beans inside of a prison. And so November 16th, 2015, I walked out of a Texas prison, not necessarily free because, John, I'm not free. I assure you, man, I'm on parole until the year 2073 in the state of Texas. What does that, what does that entail for parole? How, how often yeah. are they checking in on you? Every stuff. month. Every month I go see yeah. my parole officer. I pee in a cup. I pay an $18 mm -hmm. fine in the state of Texas every month. Uh, if I want to travel outside the state, which I do extensively in my, mm -hmm. I mean, I travel out of the country. I'm a, I, I speak all over the world. I've got to get permission every time I leave the state of Texas from parole. I mean, I have to apply for a travel permit. They have to grant it. And they, they always grant it because I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm a good example of that rehabilitation works. You know, Texas right. has got this guy that's doing these things that not many people have ever done this quickly out of prison. And uh, they're happy to work with me and they let me go into the prisons and stuff. But look, I'm on parole just like anybody else. And if I violate my parole, there's consequences that come with that as well. But November 16, 2015, I walked out of prison and, and I'm on the way out the door. Man, this is I've got a, I've got my mattress on one arm. I cut a couple bags of property. I'm leaving prison the same way I came in barely anything because that's what you leave but you don't have anything you're all your possessions in the world could fit in a bag and so i'm leaving prison i'm walking out the gate the gate's ahead of me i, I can see it you know i've been waiting seven years and three months to get on the other side of this gate and coming down the sidewalk on the right side is one of my favorite cellmates this black muslim guy from dallas named sabor now this is another black muslim guy just like the one that told me the coffee bean story mm -hmm. But this one is one that this is this guy is a guy that I was cellmates with in prison. And we got really close because Sabor came like became like a brother to me. And I learned so much from Sabor when I was his cellmate. And so this guy's coming on the sidewalk and I asked the guard, man, can I go tell my brother goodbye? And he's like, yeah, go tell your brother bye. So I dropped my bags and run over there. I hug Sabor. He hugs me back. It's really emotional. And uh, he's like, Damon, I'm so happy for you. I'm so proud of you. I'm happy for your family. He said, uh, I need to ask you something before you leave prison. I'm like, what is it, Sabor? Ask me anything you want, anything you want. He said, when you walk out of here, are you going to talk about the stuff that you saw in here, the stuff we talked about when we were cellmates in here? Now, what Sabor wants to know, am I going to talk about the stuff we, we used to talk about when I was cellmates with Sabor and I would learn from my brother Sabor about things like racism, about mm -hmm. disparities in the system, about social justice. He wants to know, well, I have those conversations where everybody can hear it. And, and man, I looked at my brother. I looked at Sabor. I'm like, dude, Sabor, man, when I get on my feet, brother, you know I will. You know I will. And John, what Sabor said to me became a call to action 
in my life because his words hit me right between the eyes when he looked at me and he said, good, good. He said, sometimes they lock up the right guy. Wow. Sometimes they lock up the right guy. Here's why I said it, John. Because racism in America. He said, the only person that's going to be able to, to penetrate this conversation is you, West. Because racism is about the imbalance of power, John. That means one race has more power over other races. And that race that's in power, they can write laws to affect where their other races live, where they go, the kind of schools they go to, the kind of America that they live in. And in America, white people have that kind of power. That's why it's so difficult for a white person in America to say that they've experienced racism. Difficult, but not impossible. When, when a white friend tells me, Damon, that person of color over there is being racist or saying something racist, I stop the conversation. I help my friend out because definitions are important and words matter. What my white friend is talking about that he's experiencing is not racism. That's prejudice. And prejudice means to prejudge. It looks like racism, looks a lot like racism, but there's no power attached to prejudice. There's power attached to racism. It's difficult for a white person to say they've ever experienced racism because whites have always been in a position of power. Difficult but not impossible, like I said, because I have. I have. For seven years and three months, I lived in a world where being white was no longer the advantage, where the color of my skin meant that I couldn't sit on a certain row of benches in the day room of the life sentence building, mm. or I got my face kicked in the rec yard simply because of the melanin that I was born with. So you see, John, I got to experience this world of racism, get dipped into toxic water and pulled out in seven years and three months, and to go tell the story to other people about racism. And, and, and to, to tell you that I think I know how we fix this problem about racism in America, but it's going to take everybody coming to the table to do that. And if you can't talk about racism without talking about the cancel culture, because the cancel culture prohibits any conversation from going on right now. You see, because that's gotten out of control too, where racism got out of control. So it's the cancel culture, because there's a difference between holding someone accountable and holding someone hostage. Mm -hmm. And right now in America, so many people, especially white people, feel like they're held hostage and they can't say anything. Well, look, I get to tell a story because I've come from a, a background that I get to operate out there and say things that you're not going to hear a lot of white guys say. So let me tell you what I think is the way we fix both of these problems in America. Let's hear it. White people, people that look white people, people that look like me, people that look like you. We are going to have to get off the sidelines, get into the game and start listening. Just listen, listen to what black and brown people are telling us about racism in America. That's going to require a ton of humility from a lot of white people to just sit there and listen because humility is going to be needed because we're going to hear some tough truths, things that we don't maybe not think are true about our country or even about what's going on. But, but we need to listen, not talk, just listen. Now, that's what white people are going to have to do. We're going to have to sit there and listen to what they're saying, what black and brown people are saying to us. Black people, brown people, let me tell you what you're going to have to do. When you find white people that are willing to listen and learn with humility about racism in America, you're going to have to teach them about racism in America. And you're going to have to do this with grace. And grace is hard, John. Grace always costs the person giving it more than it costs the person who receives it. Grace is a very difficult thing. But when grace is present, grace says that you may not say or do the right thing in this conversation, but you're not losing everything in the process of this. Grace is, grace is in this room. Humility and grace are here. When humility and grace are present, there is no room for racism or the cancel culture. 
And that's what it's going to require from this country. We live in the greatest country in the history of the world, John. The only thing greater than America is her potential. And we're not living up to our potential right now as Americans. Yeah, you, what you just said reminds me of a, I wish I remembered who it was, a video I saw recently. Um, it was, it, it was a, you know, a quick Instagram video, uh, a black guy being interviewed, I think it was on MSNBC. And uh, they were talking about um, critical race theory being taught in schools. And this black guy says the, the problem with, with the way that's being taught, it's being you're teaching white children um, that they're responsible for these crimes of the past. And you're teaching black children, you're putting them in, in a position that, that devalues them by r- relating them to, uh, to the slaves. Instead, we should be teaching white children to identify as the abolitionists because not all white people were slave owners. There were plenty of white abolitionists. So teach the history. Absolutely. We need to teach the history, but let, you know, white people identify with those who were, you know, against the slavery that was happening because there were a lot. But John, it goes back. I mean, when you're talking, we're talking about CRT. I don't care. I mean, but when you're talking about CRT and these, whatever CRT really is, these CRT laws that people pass, legislatures have passed, what do the legislative bodies look like? They look white? Because that's what I see. I see anytime you see a CRT law passed, it's because of white legislators have passed these laws. White people have that power, John. Just plays right into what I'm telling Mm -hmm. you. Racism is about the imbalance of power. And we have to fix that imbalance of power. It's incumbent upon us to fix it. Because here's what's going on right now in this country. Hate. Hate. Hate corrodes the containers containing. And it's coming from both sides. It's coming from the left. It's coming from the right. And this hate is going to be so much that it just boils over one day. And, and it just destroys us all. And I, I'm very concerned about this country and the direction yeah. it's going. And like I said, it's coming from both sides. It's not just coming from one side. You know, when I talk about, you know, the cancel culture... The cancel culture has gotten too far out of control, and that comes from the left, man. The racism predominantly comes from the right. We've got to find a way to get back to the middle, John. We're not doing that right now in this country. No, I, I I agree with you. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not disagreeing on that point. Um, and but prejudice, but but I want to do want to say prejudice mm-hmm. comes from all places, man. Prejudice is everywhere, man. You 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 know, white people can definitely we we can feel prejudice, brother. I mean, mm-hmm. that's. That's not, a, uh, yeah, white people can feel prejudice. Prejudice comes from all sides, man. There's, there's all kinds of prejudice. Everybody's got some kind of prejudice in them. So there's a big difference between prejudice and racism. Yeah, I, I agree. There's a difference between preju- pre- prejudice and also discrimination. We, we all discriminate, but it's when you're, you're taking a step and uh, you're excluding someone when it becomes uh, prejudice. I guess it's a little more complicated than that, but we, we, we could get, we'd have to get, get in that conversation today. Uh, but But Damon... I, I wanna I wanted to ask you about before we run out of time here, um, because it's one of the reasons that I had the uh you know, had the motivation and the belief to ask you to come on this show, and I'm I'm so glad I did. Uh the experience you had when you were in a in a room with what, six or seven college football coaches, and uh this was before you had really started your uh your speaking career and before you had that, that notoriety, and you had the you had the balls, you had the initiative to go up and make your pitch to every college football coach. I just want you to talk about that, that situation and how, what was it um, and how was it that you were able to, to really make yourself do that, put yourself out there? 
Yeah, I mean, look, I've been out of prison for 14 months. I, I wanted to speak, share the story of college football players. I figured I have a lot in common with college football players, but I don't know any college football coaches. And they had a, an award show in Houston called the Bear Bryant Coach of the Year Award, and a friend stuck me into their room. The eight best coaches in the country were going to be in that room, and one of them was going to be named the Coach of the Year in America. And, man, I'm going around this room, and I'm meeting all these coaches and shaking their hands and giving them my pitch. And within the first hour of being there, I've pissed through the room. Seven of the eight coaches told me no in the first hour. And I'm ready to leave. I'm ready to quit, man. I'm, I'm, I'm beat down. I'm in the corner of the Toyota Center, and I'm thinking about leaving. But then I remind myself, man, you survived prison using that perspective. You survived way worse than this. That guy's going to tell you no to your face, and then you'll go home. So I stalked. Dabo Sweeney around that room that night. And I mean, I looked like a crazy person, man. And but I, I make my pitch to Dabo and, and and his body language is terrible. And and I leave that night thinking I went 0 for 8. But a few months later, Dabo Sweeney, his director of football operations, got in touch with me and said, Hey, Coach Sweeney met your award show in Houston. He'd love to have you come talk to the team. Do you have August 1st open? Dude, I got every first open, man. I got nothing going on in my life this time. You know, yeah, I can be there tomorrow. So I go speak to the Clemson football team on August 1st, 2017. And when my presentation was over, Dabo was in my face. He was just blown away. He said, man, I've never seen my players respond like that to a speaker. He said, have you been to Alabama yet? And I'm like, no, Dabo, I've been to Clemson. Dude, I hadn't been anywhere, you know. <laughs> but he got on the phone. He called Nick Saban. And after that was Kirby Smart. And all these college football coaches started bringing me into the room because Dabo has kicked open the door. To Dabo has been my ambassador to college football. But the real magic happened one year after that presentation to Clemson. It was August, 2018. And I was at work at this law firm where I was working, which a law firm job right out of prison is a great job to have. But I got a job. I got a, I got a phone call that day in August of 2018 from a guy named John Gordon. And John Gordon is a massive motivational speaker mm -hmm. and author in this country. And I follow him on Twitter for my motivation. And he's like, you know, Damon, I was just speaking to the Clemson football team and Dabo told me your story. He called me in the office, told me your story. He said, man, write a book with me. He said, we'll call it the coffee bean. It'll be a best because he said the world needs the coffee bean message. And John, we wrote the book, the coffee bean. It came out in 2019. It's been a bestseller ever since a worldwide bestseller. It's, it's got a global publishing contract. Yeah. It's in every language in the world. China. Look, I mean, I'll show you this. Is, we're in my office. This is a, uh, Spanish version. Let's see. Can you see the name on the cover? There it is. We got it. There yeah. you go. Renault Cafe, French version. That's so cool. This is the <laughs> German version. It's in every language in the world, man. I mean, Chinese, Spanish, Arabic, French, Italian, German. I mean, it's, it's, everybody's, every language in the world has got a version of the coffee on their shelves, but it all goes back to that one night in Houston, Texas, 14 months out of prison, when I'm thinking about leaving without asking that last question. Just like you asked the question of me on Twitter Messenger, hey, can you come on my show? If I don't ask that question, John, we're not talking tonight. I don't care mm -hmm. what goes on in my life. There's no way I'm in the position I'm in right now in life without Dabo Sweeney in my life. But I've got to ask that question of that man. But that's that's the whole point of life, man. You got to, you, whatever it is you're doing, whatever profession you're in, you got to give it your best effort, give it your best shot. Some days you're going to win and some days you're going to lose. You don't have to win all your fights, but you have to fight all your fights, man. That's that. pretty much what life is all about. And that's what I did that night. I fought all my fights. And that last guy that I thought was going to sure, sure be a no ended up being the biggest yes I could ever have imagined in my life. Wow. Um, just, just incredible. 
Damon, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. But before I let you go, can you just plug again um, your book, uh, the, the first book you wrote also, A Change Agent, How a Former College yeah. Football QB Sentenced to Life in Prison is another one everyone should pick up. And also anything else, your, your socials, you want to plug all that stuff? Yeah, uh, uh, my website is damonwest.org. My social media is at damonwest7. That's for Twitter and Instagram, at damonwest7. My books are available on Amazon.com, The Change Agent, The Coffee Bean, The Coffee Bean for Kids, The Locker Room, coming in December, How to Be a Coffee Bean, The 111 Principles of Being a Coffee Bean. Um, and really, I mean, look, I've got my foundation website, beacoffeebeanfoundation.org. Be There's a lot of stuff we do for children of incarcerated parents. We do stuff, uh, try to, to educate incarcerated men to become teachers one day. So... Just a lot of stuff. I got a prison educational program. I've got a prison curriculum that I work on. Uh, just try to stay busy, John. Well, you're doing an awesome job, man. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to the Finding Freedom audience, man. Man, thank you for working with me, man. Thanks for giving me grace tonight when I was late coming home from the road. Uh, no, no worries, man. No worries. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Damon West. Just uh, an incredible guy. And I'm so gracious for the time that he gave me today. Um, uh, we didn't talk about it during the show, but he actually, we had to delay doing this interview a little bit, um, about by an hour, because he just gotten off the road. This guy is always out there working, speaking to people, and, uh, and spreading his message. And I want to encourage everyone to go out and pick up his book, Be the Coffee Bean. I think that is a tremendous motto for life, a tremendous way to live your life, to positively impact others. And, you know, another thing I just want to touch on, because the, the reason that I had was able to have Damon on is because I took his advice um, that I heard when he was being interviewed on that Ed Milet podcast that we talked about at the beginning of the show. And I just want to encourage people listening to this today, if there is something out there that you've been putting off, maybe a phone call about a business opportunity or about a job, a dream job that you want, or maybe it's just an old friend that you've been saying you're going to contact and you haven't done it for one reason or the other. Make the phone call, make the contact, connect with people, connect with people where they are and build relationships. Uh, so often we come up with things in our mind that you know people aren't going to want to talk to us or they're not going to want to hear about this or hear about that. Reach out to people. Make that connection. If you're a podcast host and you're afraid of reaching out to, to certain podcast guests because you know, they wouldn't want to talk to you, what's the worst thing that can happen? They say no or they don't respond. Those are the two worst things. That's not that bad. That's really not that bad at all. So make that connection, push forward, and live an uncomfortable life. You guys, I mean, I love the direction this show is going, and I really think and I hope that you're getting this, you're feeling this as well, that, that I'm giving you all some tools to actually you know, use and utilize in your life to find freedom. I'm using them from these interviews that I do, from the research that I do. I'm using them to find my freedom. So I hope that you are as well. That's enough ranting for today. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this podcast with a friend. This is John Odermatt signing off 
Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.